May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning once again. I I failed to mention at the outset of the service that if you are celebrating a birthday or anniversary in or around this Sunday, we would love to celebrate with you, and we can do so if you let us know by uh, giving us your name and your uh, celebration in the chat feature of the live stream. Also be encouraged to use the chat feature uh, throughout the service with prayer requests to exchange peace. Paul will make mention of that later, but because we are for the next two Sundays, the 28th and 27th, um, gathering online at 11 a.m. only. Um, It's a great way to stay connected in this time. Well, now the sermon shall begin. uh, For the other season of Advent, we have been looking at the New Testament readings, and we've been uh, packaging this series, as it were, under the title of Letters for Those Who Wait. And before we begin to look at the specific message of this letter, I want to think about the letter to the Romans as a whole. It is uh, perhaps the most widely read and influential letter in human history. For 2,000 years in places that we now call Africa and Asia and Europe, people have been reading Romans, studying Romans, listening to Romans, hanging on It's every word. It's inspired political revolutions and and religious reformations, and it has changed the lives of countless women and men by putting them in contact with God. I wonder if some of you listening today, whether in a, a college Bible study or a trip, a missions trip at some point in your life, had a, a major spiritual breakthrough by hearing or studying or listening to this powerful letter. Well, the letter ends, it concludes with a tortuous 50-word run-on sentence that our Paul read for us. I like to imagine how this letter might have been originally received. Picture the, the Christian community in Rome coming together because the Apostle Paul had written a message to them. And they sat and listened patiently for 16 chapters as Paul, in this truly titanic fashion, uh, exposited God's law and God's grace, human sinfulness and God's righteousness, God's plan for the nation of Israel and God's plan for the nations of the world. It is a letter, but it is also a a capital S sermon. And this imagined gathering, if you put it in the framework of our worship service, you would call it, that portion, the reading of the letter, the liturgy of the word. And right before the liturgy of the table, that church in Rome would have heard this text. And it would have functioned like a hymn, directing their hearts and their minds to praise God from whom all blessings flow. And there's a moment for that transition in our service between the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table. We call it the doxology. And that's also how people refer to this text, Romans 16 
25 through 27. Doxa means praise or glory, and logos means word. This passage is a word or a message about God's glory. It's a word that ascribes praise or glory to God. And it begins simply enough. Now to God, dot, dot, dot. But as Paul dictates these opening words, he can't bring himself to simply sign off with, now to God be glory forever and ever, amen. No, that's too easy. What does he do? Well, he adds a few dense phrases to praise the wonder of God and the glory of God's gospel. My hope this morning is to say two simple things about how Paul ascribes praise to God. I want to say something about the way God is glorified in giving strength and revealing mysteries. God gives strength. God reveals mysteries. First, strength. The most physically demanding thing I have ever done was a solo backpacking trip in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. I was dropped off at a very specific point and was going to be picked up at a very specific point at a very specific time five days later. I profoundly underestimated how challenging of a hike this was going to be. And if I would have had cell phone service, I would have adjusted my plans about halfway through the first day and dramatically shortened the trip. I did not. So I had no choice but to keep hiking, putting one foot in front of the other, even when it felt like my legs were going to fall off. Well, the first point that Paul makes in his word of praise to give glory to God is God's capacity to give us strength. The word in the uh, NIV translation is establish. Now to him who is able to establish you, be glory forever and ever. What does that mean to be established? To be established is to be set fast. To be established is to be able to journey resolutely in a certain direction. So, as we ascend and descend the granite mountain range that is our life, this passage is a promise that we are not on our own. God strengthens us. God is present with us in our journey so that we can put one foot in front of the other. When we're tired, when we're discouraged and can't imagine how we can keep going, God gives us strength. And the means of our strengthening, the instrument God uses to strengthen, is the gospel. That particular word about a particular person is the means through which God encourages enlivens, empowers us to keep going. And I'm going to return to that 
in a moment, but I don't want to pass over how remarkable it is that the very first thing that Paul says in his doxology, in his word of praise to glorify God, is that God is able to strengthen us. Consider what Paul might have otherwise said. Paul could have listed any number of one of God's mighty acts that draw attention to his undisputed power and sovereignty and kindness. Paul could have listed one of God's attributes that defines God's uh, beauty, our, our kindness, our wisdom. But Paul doesn't highlight one of God's mighty acts or one of God's attributes. No, Paul says God is able to strengthen us, and for that, I give God glory. Now, now here's why that is remarkable. Many kings throughout history, many powerful people today want glory. They want to be known as strong and rich and powerful and wise. How do they go about it? Very often, by denying those same things to the people over whom they rule or manage or employ. Kings and powerful people oftentimes derive and maintain their power by keeping it from others. But God, God does the exact opposite. God displays God's glory by making his people strong. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, be glory forever and ever. Amen. God displays his glory by gracing you with composure and courage. God, in other words, is not in the least bit threatened by your strength. The stronger you are, the more God's glory is revealed. Now, what does that strength look like in lived experience? What form might it actually take in our lives? Well, the verb here in chapter 16, again, to establish or to strengthen, also shows up in, uh, one more time in the book of Romans. In fact, in the first chapter of the book of Romans. And there, Paul gives us a sense of what being strengthened looks like, the form that it takes. Here's what he says. I long to see you, Romans, so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. The, the real substance of the strength that God is glorified by imparting is strength that manifests itself in our faith in Jesus Christ. It's strength that enables us to hold fast, to stand mightily on the promises of God's gospel. And that type of strength is not strength that the world knows or gives what does it mean to be a strong woman in a city like Austin, Texas in the year 2020? What does it mean to be a strong man in a city like Austin, Texas in the year 2020? 
some combination of being attractive and assertive. It means being able to navigate channels of influence. It means being cultured and sophisticated and shrewd and strategic. And of course, not all of those things are bad. But that is not what is on offer here. The strength that God gives is the strength that you feel when you are so confident in your identity as a child of God that you fear nothing but God. It's strength to be a faithful friend. It's strength to lead our children so that they never know a day apart from the love of God. It's strength to be able to stand your ground and say no to sinful behavior, even when you stand to gain from it. It is strength to press on in the cause of justice and mercy and truth when your motivation wanes and it doesn't look like you're making any meaningful difference. To be strengthened by God is to have a kind of inner poise through faith in Christ. Poise that makes you more content in times of need than you would otherwise be in times of plenty. Poise to be calmer under pressure than you would otherwise be in times of peace. God gives you that kind of strength through the gospel. And brothers and sisters, the heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, God's beloved, is given to you. The gospel is a word that gives you Christ, that bonds you to him, a word that elicits and secures your bottomless joy. We never, ever outgrow our need for that word that gives us Christ. We don't hear it at the outset of our Christian life and then graduate to more complex, uh, esoteric words. God strengthens us through the gospel day by day until we die and meet him face to face. Point one, God strengthens us. Point two, God reveals mysteries to us. This point that God, through the gospel, strengthens us, that's relatively uncomplicated. But what Paul says next in the passage, I find extremely complicated. Here's what he says. The gospel is the revelation of a mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. What in the world does that mean? Well, one thing it means is that the gospel... This word about Jesus Christ, his death for you, his resurrection for you, his coming again for you, this word is rooted 
in eternity. It was not God's improvised plan B once sin entered the world. Our salvation story, the story that gives shape and definition and meaning and significance to our lives, stretches back to and is rooted in the mind of God. It's secure. It was God's plan all along. But what I want to stress here is not the the eternity or something of the gospel. I want to stress this note that Paul makes of disclosure. The mystery has been revealed, made known. It's no longer obscure. It's no longer misty or hidden. It is as plain as day, and it is for everybody. Sometimes, let let me let you in on my sermon prep method. Sometimes when I am stuck trying to make sense of what to say about a particular passage, I'll just pause and consider why a passage appointed in the lectionary for a specific Sunday is there in the first place. Like, why did the editors of the lectionary in their infinite wisdom appoint that text for that particular Sunday? Does that make sense? It doesn't always help, but I think a Sunday like this, it does help. We are in the fourth Sunday of Advent. We are just a few days away from the feast of the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. So why this passage on this Sunday? Well, I think that what this passage does is help us understand the significance of Christ's birth in truly cosmic and and world historical terms. Let's start kind of unpacking that by that word that it's in our text, mystery. That word mystery, it shows up quite a bit in the New Testament, I think 27 times. And it is one of Paul's in particular, his favorite words. He uses it 20 of those 27 times. He uses it a lot. But what's interesting, when we hear the word mystery, we think of something that is puzzling. That is, it's a riddle. We don't exactly know what's going on. Maybe not until the very end, like a novel. But in fact, the, the Bible uses that term in almost the exact opposite way. When the Bible, the New Testament, uses the word mystery, the stress is almost always that the mystery has been revealed, that the mystery has been made known, that it's been disclosed or declared or made plain so that everybody can understand it. And therefore, we do not, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, run around like someone running aimlessly. We do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Why? Because the mystery of our salvation has been revealed. It's been made known. And so these massive questions that have puzzled the greatest minds throughout human history about the meaning of history, about the way to the good life, Christians can say with all humility, God has revealed the mystery. The most important questions about human existence are laid bare for us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there is something attractive, dare I say, romantic in our late modern culture about the notion of mystery, about being the kind of person who is comfortable with ambiguity, who is strong enough to say, well, I don't know all the answers to life's big questions. And look, fair enough. But there is something 
dare I say, privileged about that kind of idea. The Christian faith, brothers and sisters, is not just for people with master's degrees. People with the time or the resources to sit back and ponder life's biggest questions. Our faith, our good news, is for everybody who needs help. It's for people who, for one reason or another, have discovered that the child of low estate we celebrate on December 25th is, in fact, the Son of God. And in the framework that Paul is using here, it's, you know, the prophetic writings, the hints in the Old Testament that the covenant with Abraham maybe just wasn't about Abraham, that David maybe pointed to a greater king, that the tabernacle and the temple maybe pointed to this idea that God's presence would one day be universally available, that the, the, this notion in the Old Testament that all the nations of the earth, people of different colors and cultures, would one day come together and worship the one true God. What Paul is saying is, brothers and sisters, the mystery, how all that stuff works together, has been revealed. It is in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that the most basic and important questions about human existence have been answered. The mystery has been revealed. And by this, Paul says, God is glorified. God is glorified by taking people from very different backgrounds, from very different cultures and expectations and definitions about what is most important. God is glorified by enlightening the hearts of those same people, by opening their eyes to perceive and grasp what is most ultimately important about reality, by enlightening the eyes of their hearts, he says in Ephesians 3. And Jesus, in fact, sounded a very similar note in the Gospel of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 11, a very famous prayer. He says, I praise you, Father. I glorify you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing to you. God receives glory by taking people who have no business climbing mountains and making them world-class hikers. In the same way, God is glorified by taking people who have no business solving the great riddles of life and making them wise through the unveiling of the gospel. Now, about both of these points, strength and revealing of mysteries, I, I want to hazard an application. And I want to do so knowing full well how ironic it is uh, in light of our present circumstances. Here it is. If you want the confidence and the assistance and the poise that comes from knowing God and knowing the truth about God, then friends, it is so important to have your butt in church. Okay, there I said it. I, um, I realize that in this setting, what that means for a lot of us is simply sitting in our living room because we're not able to be here. And of course, that's fine. I'm not putting pressure on people in this season. But what I am saying 
is that there is something subtle but significant that happens when we gather together as the people of God to hear God's word, to sing God's praises, to try to make sense of our lives in light of what God has revealed. And I, this is not an apology for our defense, for my profundity, for Peter's profound sermons. This has nothing to do with anything that I say or that anyone else says. This is a, a conviction, a rock-solid conviction, that when we gather together as a community, God is present. And God strengthens us. And God confirms and assures us of the truth. This point about the centrality of gathering together was, was reinforced to me recently. I have a very good friend who, whose life has been completely turned around through um, recovery, through you know, ministries, or excuse me, through organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous. And he related to me that there is a refrain that you hear when you attend AA meetings a lot. And the refrain or the phrase is in these rooms. So people will say something like, my life was spiraling out of control. The only reason why I am alive, the only reason why I am here and not in a prison is because I kept coming back to these rooms. Or I woke up this morning so restless and irritable and discontent. And normally that attitude would drive me to drinking or drugging, but I knew I needed to be back in these rooms to be happy and joyous and free. In these rooms, there is something that happens that God does to us, a strengthening and a revealing when we gather in these rooms, whether that's in your living room or when things get a little bit safer, back in these rooms. God strengthens and God reveals. Now, final word. In, in just a few days, on Thursday night, in fact, we will come together and we're going to sing a bunch of carols that all strongly feature the word glory. Angels we have heard on high. Hark, the herald angels sing. Joy to the world. O come, all ye faithful. We'll sing glory be to God in the highest. For what do we give God glory Many, many things. But here are two. God is a giver of strength. And God is a revealer of mysteries. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.